Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. We have brought somebody back who was on, oh, I don't know what episode, like four or something way back in October. Really of, in the beginning. Yeah, October uh, 2017. And now we're in t- almost October, you know, what, August 2020, which, you know, super <laughs> exciting year. Everybody is very excited about 2020 and it's still going. Uh so Jeff Kaysen's back, and we wanted to talk to him about what he's been doing since then, and he has uh, been involved in the El Segundo Arts Council and getting that going, which also want to talk about. So welcome back to the podcast. Hi, everyone. Glad to be back. See you waved. Everybody waves because it's a video. <laughs> hey, I, I wave all the time. See that video. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I need some sound five. effects so people know what I'm doing. Okay, yeah, just like, you know. Breathe some heavy air. Be like, whoosh, whoosh. I'm waving. <laughs> I've, I've been on meetings too much today. Uh, so, yeah, what when we talked to you last, you were starting up a company and doing shows and in El Segundo, and you're still in El Segundo. So what, what exciting things have you been up to uh, since last time, since three years ago? Yeah, gosh, I can't believe it's already been three years. Right? Um, so... <laughs> Uh, a lot has happened since then. Um, I think when we last spoke, um, had I just done the fireworks show or was I about to do it? Do you remember? I don't because I talked to you way more than just the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember talking about it. So I don't remember if it was like about it leading up to it or about it like it just happened. I think it was leading up to it because I think I posted a video of it. Okay, great. Yes. Well, I'll give the short recap. <laughs> Um, so yeah, when we last spoke, um, I was working on a fireworks spectacular for the city of El Segundo's Centennial. Um, it was a project we had been developing for about three years and, um, it was, a, kind of a Disney style spectacular with fireworks and, uh, projection mapping and lights and, uh, an original score, uh, that were written by my good friends, Jason and Nolan Libacy, um, that we recorded at Warner Brothers with a full orchestra. I mean, it was a, it was a whole thing. Oh. And uh, I think even now, three years later, it's still probably my favorite project that I've ever worked on. Um, as a kid, just growing up, uh, you know, being in awe of the Disney spectaculars, being in awe of Olympics and Super Bowl and, and all those uh, large scale presentations. Um, it was just so neat to finally have the opportunity to work on a show like that. Um, and so that was absolutely a highlight of uh the end of 2017. Um, And then uh, in 2018, um, I had a project called Soundstage Live. Um, This was a venture that my sister and I were working on where we were trying to integrate some new technologies into the theater space. Um, And so our whole thing was presenting movie musicals um, that had immersive projections that painted not just the stage, but the walls of the theater. Um, and then the the new sort of game changer is we worked with a company to develop a, a new mobile technology um, that would allow the audience to interact with the live show uh, via their phones. And so uh, our proof of concept was Disney's The Little Mermaid, 
uh, featuring Todrick Hall. And uh, we had this really cool app where guests could, um, you know, like at the end when Ursula grows large with power, they could get the power of the trident on their phones and point it at Ursula and blow her up. Um, and so it was a neat path that we were uh, kind of walking down to figure out how do we integrate some of these newer technologies into theater to make it more interactive, more immersive um, and keep things fresh. That was the uh, first and I think currently only show I have put my husband on was running that program. And it was the only time he's been on headset. And he was <laughs> like, oh, my God, it's like a whole nother world on headset. Then what's going on on stage and around me? And I was like, yep, two worlds, two very different worlds. And he thought that was pretty entertaining. And I was like, that we is why we stay on headset. <laughs> we talked about it in at least one podcast, I think. Yeah, probably. That we were talking about because we were talking about the um the app with the like that he said that you because he was up above i guess kai was or something you know and you could like yeah, see we were all of the like fish the and stuff and yeah, yeah that was awesome wish i could have seen that i have some videos i'll send them <laughs> i'll post them <laughs> <laughs> well kai did an amazing job um running that and stacy i know you worked on that project as well um, mm -hmm. because we had a whole uh lobby experience as well with step and repeats and with some uh, audience interactive moments. And uh, I think different churros. I tried a different churro with different flavors every night. Because the yes, stuff, that's right. The important thing. The mermaid kind of drink. Themed, yeah. Yeah, there's a mermaid themed lemonade and mermaid themed churros. I had uh, every churro and every <laughs> lemonade because I was there for like five nights. So I had to try all of them. I'd like climb back up the booth and I'd have like drinks under my arm trying to climb the ladder and be like, Kai, I brought you a lemonade. Which one do you want? <laughs> that's wonderful stuff yeah. that happens backstage right <laughs> oh, of course well and see the thing is i don't even know if i had a churro or lemonade you know oh, i was going so crazy out, trying they were to excellent oh that's what i hear it, you know it's <laughs> it was one of those whirlwinds events where i was going so crazy i don't even remember eating or or who mm -hmm. i saw or talked to i i think yeah. i just had a you know, went into a coma and blacked out for a week. Back out. Uh, you also like sprained your ankle and were hobbling around on crutches, which was very convenient. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I uh, dislocated my knee uh, two weeks <laughs> before that show started um, and was bedridden for a whole week uh, leading right up to tech. I was taking um, our final production meetings in my bedroom. Um, wow. <laughs> How did you so, do that? Was it like theater related? Uh, sort of. Um, we, because this was our first venture, you know, we didn't have a warehouse. We didn't have any place to store things. And so a lot of the items that were being prepared or created for the show were created at my house, um, in the garage, in the yard, in the basement, um, all over the place. And so I was, you know, just rushing as all injury stories begin, <laughs> uh -huh. trying to move things and get things out of the way for whatever had to happen next. Um, and I just twisted the wrong way, carrying a bunch of heavy stuff and, and went down. Yeah. Uh, one of the first shows Jeff and I did together back in college, he threw out his knee because he was explaining some beauty and the beast magical effect in the quad at the university of Redlands and jumped off of something and then fell over. But it was yeah. farther than two weeks from tech. We were farther out. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My exuberance gets me into trouble. <laughs> And apparently shows get you into trouble. You should really work, watch that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, 
sprained my ankle, broke my foot the day before final room run. So two days before we loaded into the theater for Traviata. So, so I feel you there. I was like in a wheelchair my first day on stage and the crew thankfully knew me and got a kick out of like pushing me around backstage in my wheelchair. Oh man. Yeah. That's so tough navigating a theater when you, you can't move freely. Especially when they're all older. Right. The bathroom was on my level, but the dressing rooms were two steps up. So I was like, well, whatever, as long as I can get to the bathroom, then (laughs) at my calling station, like the ASM will take care of the dressing rooms. We're all good. Sure. Sure. Uh, excellent stuff. And then after Little Mermaid, you did an install in El Segundo, and that might have been your connection to the Art Council. You did a Wizard of Oz interactive thing, right? I'm describing yeah, this so, very well. <laughs> so the Wizard of Oz thing, so we developed two new projects after The Little Mermaid. Um, what we found with the little mermaid is well, and with this whole concept overall, it was really cool technology that I think had a lot of promise, but we were certainly early to the party. Mm. Um, you know, this is emerging technology and as a result is very expensive. Um, you know, I believed then and probably said this on the podcast and I still believe it now that, you know, five years or so, I think we're going to see more and more of this uh, start to show up in the live event space. Um, but at the time, it, it was brand new. We were really sort of, you know, reinventing the wheel um, when it came to show interaction. And so Mermaid was such a big undertaking. We realized if this was going to be sustainable, we needed to narrow our focus a little bit. Instead of worrying so much about large proscenium theater, how could we get more specific about this technology and how this technology hmm. can help us tell stories um, without the expense of celebrities and, and large spaces and kind of everything that that goes along with it? And so we developed two concepts. Um, one, you mentioned the Wizard of Oz experience. This was a partnership with the El Segundo Museum of Art, where um, we were looking to create by day a museum exhibit that has artifacts and pictures that are on the wall, just like any other exhibit. But it was all around the original book, um, L. Frank Baum's book, The Wizard of Oz. Um, And so we collected original prints um, of the book, of illustrations, um, a lot of ephemera uh, through the years uh, that has been inspired by those stories. Um, But the idea was that by night, this museum exhibit would come to life magically come to life with 360 degree projections. And so the characters would actually climb out of their paintings and illustrations, stand on top of their picture frames, and then retell the story of the Wizard of Oz in a mobile interactive way. And unlike uh, Mermaid, which was what I would call like passive interactivity, which means, yeah, you hold up your trident to Ursula, but we've already pre-programmed what it's gonna do. This was a more active interactivity where the audience could make selections on their phones and even play mini games like a 360 degree virtual reality holodeck sort of thing that would impact what characters did. So when the flying monkeys come to steal Dorothy and her friends, they could all throw rocks at the flying monkeys uh, to try to get them to go away. Or um, when Dorothy was searching for her friends originally, Tin Man and Scarecrow and the lion, Um, The audience could actually walk around this space and use what's called eye beacon technology to figure out where specifically in the museum uh, those friends are hiding 
um, so that they can have them join her on the journey. Um, so, so that was a really fun project we were working on. And then the other one was called Rewrite the Stars, which was a choose your own adventure musical. It was essentially like a jukebox, um, you know, kind of like a cabaret, I guess musical is the wrong term, a cabaret, right? Where, you know, you just have actors who are singing different songs from different movie musicals, but the audience could use their phones to vote on and choose what path they wanted this cabaret to take. Um, so, so that you could kind of weave the story as told through the lyrics of the song any which way um, until you got to the end and play some mini games along the way. What was that one called? Uh, it was going to be called Rewrite the Stars. Ah, uh, got it. I was like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't remember that one. Yeah. So those are the two concepts we developed. Um, <clears throat> we weren't sure which one we were going to start first, but the partnership with the museum um, sort of you know, came together. Uh, quicker. So that was the one that we we decided to do first. And, um, you know, I think similar to Mermaid, even though we narrowed the concept, you know, we started realizing that just the sheer cost of um, of getting this functional and, and where it needs to be um, was just a real challenge. Um, we had investors, we, we kind of built this whole thing towards this goal. Um, but as a startup company, it's, it's really hard to fund the R and D, um, that allows you to, to execute these things without deep pockets. And, and ultimately we just had to adjust our expectations based on, uh, where our funding was. As far as cost prohibitive to do, is it because you guys were creating a new device or was it physically just like the cost of renting projectors and having people who know how to like map and program or all of the above? Were you creating like a, a, a specific app or a specific program that had never been created before? Or was it just trying to like alter one that did exist to make it do what you wanted it to do? Sort of in the middle of those two. Um, mm-hmm. we, we were working with a technology partner who had de- developed some of the hardware capabilities for this. But it was the degree of interaction um, mm-hmm. that was brand new for all of us. Um, and and in going down that road, certainly we we saw a clear path to develop. It, it wasn't a matter of if we could do it or not. It just ultimately uh, came down to, you know, do we have the funding, the infrastructure um, to right. be able to do this and do this reliably for what was going to be a 12-week installation uh, in the museum. So you guys did, it didn't end up being as interactive, but you still managed to make it somewhat interactive and it still was an install. So then what was, what was the final product that you did get out of it? Cause I, I didn't yeah. go with a big audience. I got a special tour just from you one day. So wh- <laughs> how did it, yeah, how privilege. did it end up? I know. Sure. Um, well, it turned out to be a fantastic um, exhibit. Um, you know, the, the pieces that we brought in were fantastic. And we did use a lot of projection mapping uh, in that experience, um, uh, which was really neat. And so a lot of the pieces could come alive. In fact, we had uh, an incredibly talented muralist named Ace Bourne. Uh, he's a Los Angeles-based artist. He painted uh, five murals uh, that were on the walls, directly painted onto the walls that represented five different locations in the Land of Oz. Um, and those were kind of the 
focal points where a lot of the artwork was then hung sort of around these clusters of, the, of these five areas. And, um, and so our areas included um, projection mapped moments where all the filming we did for the original Oz show, because we did green screen shooting in the studio with the characters, uh, we still had these characters come to life just in different ways. So one area was like the witch's castle and the doors opened of the castle. And then you got to see the witch, um, you know, conjuring up a spell and all the magic and you know, she's going to get Dorothy. And then you see Dorothy like with a bucket kind of pop out of the side and throw the water on the witch and then melts the witch. Or we had a book um, which just looked like a regular book on display of the Wizard of Oz, but it turned out that was all projection mapped. And so the pages would turn themselves and then you got to see some of the scenes uh, come alive. Or perhaps my favorite one, we had a pair of um, silver slippers. In yeah, the book. this one, I really loved slippers, this one. Not ruby slippers. Um, they changed it to ruby in the film because it looked better in Technicolor. Um, but we took silver slippers and we mapped the slippers um, so that the slippers would turn ruby. They'd turn back to silver. You would see the witch's hands go towards them and get shocked. And she had to pull her hands away. And so it was really neat to take these artifacts um, that have historical significance in, in the canon of the Wizard of Oz, but then bring them to life with animations um, so that it blended that film and book and live experience together. The slippers Can you tell so us funny. more? Like we went there and Jeff, you know, walked me around and showed me things and he walks over and he like pushed it like a centimeter. He's like, they're not lined up. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Dude, that's what projection mapping is. It's like it'll drive you freaking crazy. So so precise. Yeah. <laughs> that's like the Faust that I did, where like we were projected projection mapping onto set pieces that were then being moved by performers, you know, and it was like we had to get really, really specific with these. Thankfully it was the same four performers, you know, but I was like, no, like you have to hit the spikes. Like we had the biggest spikes. Cause we're like, if you're like over half an inch, the entire projection mapping is not going to look as good because you're off spike, you know, like this is such a new concept for so many people. Usually you're close to spikes. Uh, can you tell us more about, cause you mentioned using the performers on green screen. What was that like? Like, did you use theatrical performers and it was kind of a new concept for them trying to act on green screen? Or did you have people who had done green screen before? Just because, you know, I'm walking into a situation in two weeks with opera singers doing green screen and we're trying to figure <laughs> out like uh, how much time that's going to take for them to learn how to do. Because it's, it's, it's so different to act against a screen as opposed to like your scene partner, which is what you've been trained to do your whole life. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, you know, I, I use um, folks who primarily do theater because that's my network. Right. Um, but I'm always amazed at how adaptable um, our, our performers are. Um, you know, I think even though it is different, you don't have the physical set or the space that you might be used to and you don't always have the scene partners. In fact, mm -hmm. you know, for our munchkins and, and some of our other uh, characters, uh, we just had one actor be all of them the same way that the yeah. remember the reboot of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory had one guy play all of the Oompa Loompas and they just replicated oh. him digitally on screen. So we did a lot of that. Um, <laughs> and I've done that for other projects, too. So I think that's always a little bit of a head trip for an actor to kind of be themselves, but know they're supposed to be a crowd at the same time. <laughs> um, yeah. But but they're so great. You know, they pick up on it and. 
And you have opportunities you don't have on the stage, which is you never leave the director actor um, connection. It's not like we're setting them up to do something and then the director walks away. Um, here, the director gets to be by the camera and and really, mm-hmm. you know, have that connection with each actor to draw out the performance uh, for mm-hmm. exactly what will be best for that particular scene. Yeah, that's kind of what we're excited about is that the director is not leaving, you know, they're kind of there and can like point during the the filming of it or the live stream of it and, you know, do it in real time. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah, but I found that now most almost every uh, theatrical projection uh, project that I work on has some green screen element now. Um, I think it's just becoming so prevalent to, to find ways to digitally represent actors on stage um, in addition to their physical presence. Which well, how do you think... Brings, uh, no, no, your turn. I, I, I went well, first. I was going to kind of jump to what his current project is, which is also kind of project. Okay, no, then we're not ready for that yet. Okay. How, this is more a theoretical question. Do you think that's going to accelerate considering the path we're on right now with everybody not being able to perform together anyways by being more digital, projection mapped, green screened? Do you know what I mean? Like, I know people who are actually starting to do like green screen and acting on on Zoom and creating these shows on Zoom. So I'm wondering if that's going to be like push the process along more or make it stall out because people aren't going to want to see that at some point and they're tired of screens and and they're going to want to see actual performers. (laughs) I'm wondering like which way it's going to go. Sure. Um, I mean, obviously I think the answer is different in a COVID world versus a COVID world. Um, For now, I'm so excited to see the way that our industry is adapting um, to virtual um, you know, because right now the alternative is, is nothing. It's, it's nothing. not bringing our stories, uh, in front of people. Um, and so, uh, I applaud, you know, virtual presentation, virtual theater, um, right now, but, you know, I think we can all agree that there is something about being live that just cannot be replicated, no matter how good the technology is, no matter how good and slick the presentation is. Um, I don't ever see digital actors replacing live actors, in especially in the live space. I think once we can be live, we'll be live. But the the digital um, moments, I think, really are for effects. It's for stuff that you mm. couldn't physically do on stage, but because of technology. You know, now you can have a character pop up 47 times around the audience and then disappear um, Mm, to mm -hmm. to have a gag. Um, But those, yeah, those images will never replace the live actor, in my opinion, um, that you see on the stage. Yeah, otherwise movies and TV shows would have killed live theater years ago. That's true. Sure, yeah. They didn't. We'd all be fighting for the same jobs again. (laughs) Okay, so it kind of goes into what uh, I was going to ask is, so now um, you just started, well, you've been working on, but you just had like your first test for this new project you're working on, which is almost, well, I guess it is completely digital, but being projected on a moving piece that fits in your car. So what what are you working on now? Yeah, so um, 
I, when COVID started, I had the same existential crisis I think a lot of us had yes, who work yes. in live production. We go, what on earth am I going to do? I mean, our industry is virtually shut down. Um, obviously, there are some things that are creatively happening, you know, in the corners. But um, for the most part, you know, perhaps until spring 2021, um, we can't expect much to happen. And and this is an ever-changing situation. So so who knows mm-hmm. when, when live production comes back? And so um, in the midst of that, I was just really trying to ponder, what can I do? Um, you know, in, aside from just going and, you know, going back to school and learning how to do finance or, or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think really is like all of our did, minds. Like, yeah. Everyone's like, yeah. do I go back yeah, to yeah, school? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, is there a way to stay in this industry, um, but be able to adapt to, to the current uh, circumstances that we're in? And uh, around that same time, I saw on our local Facebook groups, a lot of parents were just posting with the same problem. They say, it's my kid's birthday coming up, and I have absolutely no idea what to do for them. They can't see their friends. We are all tired of drive-by parades. Like, what do we do? And I had kind of one of those aha, like, in the shower moments. (laughs) I said, (laughs) wait a minute. What if there was a way that you could shrink down a projection mapped experience to fit in somebody's yard? Um, Something that could be experienced in a socially distanced way, but still had the same punch and excitement that you might have if you went and saw like a theme park spectacular, right? And so that was the genesis for this idea of pop-up spectaculars, um, where we have uh, built a 10-foot pop-up castle that sets up in about 15 minutes in somebody's yard or driveway. And there is a uh, projection-mapped show that takes place on this castle that is personalized specifically for that birthday child's special day. Um, So I started uh, putting this together about three months ago, started animating on it. Um, and we tell this whole story of a birthday princess or prince, um, who goes on a scavenger hunt to try to find their birthday party and their friends and family have left them clues along the way. And so they travel through all these magical lands, um, following the clues until they finally find their party and get to celebrate with friends and family. And then it ends in this, um, big finale that incorporates real photos from the kid of their friends and family. Um, and the whole thing is personalized to the kids' interests. Um, and so it's it's this amazing personal experience that a family gets to share together, but they get to do it in the safety of their yard. And they get to be included because they're giving you the story. Exactly. Or like giving you the pictures. And so you said you set the, the castle up in their yard and then you projection map from your car. So there's like the physical castle there. Um, we, we actually pull out a projector. So we did our first, um, test show last weekend. It was a local family in El Segundo. And, um, so yeah, popped up the castle in their yard, um, set up a projector on a little table. Um, and then the whole show just runs off QLab. Um, but we purposely engineered this whole thing so that it could pack in a Prius. <laughs> so the castle, yes. the castle frame actually folds up specifically to the dimensions of the back of my car. That's how we built it. <laughs> um, 
we worked with a local screen printing company to create um, six Sintra panels. So it's a, a graphically printed a four color process printed panels um, that fit like puzzle pieces um, using Velcro onto the front of the frame. Um, and then we have a projector, which has some quick alignment tricks. So once we get in there, um, it's 15 minutes from arriving on site to be ready to start the show. And then my favorite part, we have a big old Bluetooth speaker, um, which is going to run the audio feed of the show. But because it's Bluetooth, the family can watch from wherever they're comfortable. So if they want to sit outside, it's loud enough to be nice and full outside, but it's also sanitized so they can bring it inside if they want to watch through a window from inside the house and see the show presented outside huh. the house. Uh, sanitized speaker. The world. No, but that... So weird. Yeah. <laughs> Drop it off back up six feet so I can come pick it up. <laughs> <laughs> But isn't it true? I mean, that is the world we live in. And, yeah. Yeah. you know, what's interesting is from a kind of a customer service point of view, now the customer wants to see very visibly the steps and the actions you're taking mm -hmm. to keep them safe. Something that mm -hmm. used to, I think, largely operate in the background now mm -hmm. is a benefit to run in the foreground. And so um, we, along with many companies, are trying to find ways to show our customers we're going to take care of their health and safety every step along the way when we provide a service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have we have sheets now all around the office of every time I sanitize something. My name and what I sanitized and what we used. and like Usually it's just like, yeah, the bathroom's clean, great. Yeah, but when was the bathroom cleaned? <laughs> With what mm -hmm. chemicals did you clean the bathroom? Funny stuff. Uh, so... Uh, I will tag this obviously in the post and all, but what if somebody wants to hire you to come out and throw a birthday spectacular for their kid? Yeah. So um, we do have a uh, website that just went up today, actually. <clears throat> and uh, it's a, uh, it's a page on my website. So it's jeffreycason.com slash pop-up. And uh, on there, you can fill out a form uh, with some information uh, to, to request a quote. And then I get back uh, to anybody who's interested. And we talk about some of the details of their events um, and how we can present this show. Uh, so it's very, very easy. And then what's so cool is in order to personalize the show, we just have an online form um, that families can fill out. So once they're ordering the show, they just fill out information, you know, your kid's favorite color, um, three of their favorite friends or family members. There's a space to upload photos. So you just upload, hit send, and then I have all of the information to be able to create customized content uh, for the upcoming show. Is this something that takes like, I need to plan five weeks ahead or is it, oh my God, my kid's birthday is this weekend. What do I do? <laughs> um, some in between. Yeah, our goal <laughs> is to get to it tomorrow or the next day. And, and, and we can get it going. But right now we have a fairly short turnaround. Um, you know, I think we're looking at probably about three to four days um, of, you know, actual production uh, between getting an order go through and putting it up. Um, and so any further delay would just be a matter of scheduling, you know, if we have that time slot and that night open and available. Nice. And do yeah. you do it all your, do you do it yourself or do you have other people working with you? Like, are you the one that puts it into the program? Uh, yeah, I do it all myself. 
Um, you know, the I think the benefit of working on, you know, dozens and dozens of theatrical design projects <laughs> over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, I never set out to be an animator, but, you know, through through the years, I've sort of picked up on on a lot of uh, skill sets. And, and so, yeah, right now I'm able to develop the show and, and it's all original content. Um, so this isn't the Spider-Man show or the Paw Patrol show. Uh, obviously we don't have the uh, license to be able to use other companies IP. Um, but, you know, right now I think we have the opportunity to tell universally um, loved and, uh, you know, really universally loved stories um, that people know just because they come up so many times in stories. Uh, right uh-huh. now it's this birthday princess, but later on we might be developing like a pirates themed show or uh-huh. developing a superhero themed show. Again, yeah. all original content, but stuff that taps into the things that you loved as kids when you were growing up. Right. Cause I'd be like princess. I wanted to see the superheroes. <laughs> you said kids growing up and I was like, or nowadays. Or nowadays. <laughs> or nowadays. Well, and that's yeah. the thing too. I, I think the the spot that made sense to start was for kids um and for birthdays. But I think one thing that's very exciting to me is there's a lot of avenues uh that this can go. Um, you know, we are going to be coming up on Halloween on Christmas. Mm. And I think this year more than ever, people, because they can't celebrate with other people as much, they're going to be more excited and passionate about their displays and, and what they put in front of their house. And, you know, people being able to drive by and experience um, their their celebration. And so we'll definitely be working on um, some holiday shows uh, that we can put up during this season. I was thinking how cool it would be if like, all the grandkids got together and like put one together for grandma, you know, and it like showed up at her house and all of a sudden it was like, you know, all of your grandchildren there projected in front of you. That would be so cool. Yeah. Mima would have loved that. Right. Absolutely. That's what I was just thinking. Like that would have <laughs> been like, that would be such a cool present because it's, it's individual. It's personalized. You know, most people don't need physical things, especially grandparents, you know, like they want those kinds of things. That'd be so cool. So you mentioned, you just said, you know, I never meant to go into animation, but you 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 do it now. It was interesting because Stacey and I were talking earlier about um, education and how most people where they are now is not necessarily like where they thought that they were going to be when they got started. Yeah, Jeff, uh, where did you get started in school? <laughs> <laughs> I was a music student. <laughs> in composition, right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> and now yep. you're animating. So like, it's not where people thought they were going to go. And I know we've kind of discussed your past in the past, in, in the last <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but if you had to like describe the steps that happens on purpose or on accident to like get where you are in like two minutes, how would you describe that? Oh, geez. yeah. Two minutes, ready? <laughs> um, I, I think most of the skills I have um, were picked up along the way out of necessity. Um, you know, I was only ever formally trained as a music composition student. Uh, you know, I wanted to score films in college. And, um, you know, Stacy and I worked on all these great projects in, in school, um, you know, where I discovered my passion for theater uh, and for live shows. And, and so, you know, every step of the way, it's like, well, I want to do a show. Everyone said no. And I said, okay, well, how do I do it? I guess I have to produce it myself. 
So then I learned out of necessity, I better figure out how to produce. And so I bought books and, and just started <laughs> trying things and, and did some things terribly at first because, you know, you fail a lot when you first try to pick up a skill. Um, but then along the way, each time I had an idea, I realized that money or resource or access um, was going to prevent it from happening. And so instead of just settling for, well, I guess I can't do that. I decided, no, I'm going to teach myself how, self how to do that. And then we'll do that. Um, and so everything from lighting design to projection design um, to technical theater, um, rigging, animating, um, you know, even down to learning how to, you know, market, you know, SEO and social media marketing and ad buys. And, you know, these are all just skills that each time I, I came up to a, what do I do? Can I afford someone? No, I can't. I better learn it. <laughs> and, and, and that really has been my, my path through life. I feel like especially now, so many people are on that path. You know, we mentioned when this all happened, I think so many of us are like, do we go back to school? Like, is this what the world is telling us? And in a sense, like we all kind of did like, okay, well, we didn't go back to school officially, but like, we're all trying to learn new ways to make this happen. You know, like, yeah, I couldn't find projection mapping and like how to, how to put this together in your car. Yeah, I find <laughs> my flour. education turned into sourdough bread making. Yeah, <laughs> everybody has learned how to cook, and I'm like, dude, I've been cooking. Everyone's like, look, I made blueberry muffins, and I'm like, good. <laughs> I'm glad the pandemic hit, so you learned how to use your cookbook. <laughs> that reminds me, I was gonna go make banana bread tonight. Maybe I'll still do that. I was talking more along the lines of like, you know, I'm working on a virtual reality opera, and Jeff's like putting. Uh, I'm not gonna say motion capture. Um, projection mapping things in his car, and Stacy's over here making blueberry muffins. That's not what we're talking about. Stacey. I learned how to use a CNC machine. I'm being useful. I already knew how to make blueberry okay, muffins. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know the implications this has for the way we approach theater education or arts education. You know, I'm really curious to see how we come out of this pandemic season and what changes that will make. Um, I think in a lot of ways, we've looked to formal education um, to kind of set us up for that, that next step. And, and certainly, you know, I'm not putting down formal education. I, I think there's so many great things that come out of one-on-one -on -one or one-on-few learning from people who have a wealth of experience um, and can help teach you and guide you as you learn. Um, but but we now live in a time where so much information is just available. Um, you don't have mm -hmm. to be in a university setting to pick up any of these skills. You really can find a lot of the information if you look for it. Um, and I think as long as we give ourselves permission to try and fail a lot, um, you know, you can come out a couple of years later um, being just as skilled as somebody who had a more formal path um, in mm -hmm. a particular area. And so... I, I think that really opens the doors and, and makes this more accessible to folks who wouldn't otherwise have access. I think it's also uh, bringing back, like I said, baking. It's People are now stuck at home, and so they're working in the yard. They're um, baking. They're sewing. They're 
getting cats and dogs like the adoption agencies are going crazy like people are learning a lot of people are like figuring out their own mental state and what to do while being stuck at home for six months with your family like I think a lot of people are learning a lot of stuff that way so it'll also be interesting when we get back to whatever becomes standard um, if the arts and education and physical things like that start to become a little more important in the formalized school training than, than what we've lost over the years of the arts. I was thinking, well, I've been thinking, you know, so many theaters, not theaters, 30, well, theaters too, but universities, you know, are canceling whole seasons right now. I'm wondering what that looks like 10, 15 years from now, you know, like if there's this whole gap in the generation or if all of a sudden in 10 years from now, we see like an entire new shift because of what people are learning and teaching themselves now. So even though I'm concerned with, you know, what a year from now looks like, I'm more curious about what it's going to look like in a few years from now with those people who are in high school right now who aren't getting the education we got in high school or college, you know, because they are teaching themselves or because it is open to those people who can have internet access but can't afford to go to, you know, $100,000, get a $100,000 education can still get the same training as long as they have a computer and internet access. Which, Which is, is also cool. screwing the people who don't have a computer to internet access. Yeah. Right. It's going to be an interesting That's true. to see in 20 years. Uh, going with the whole money, what are we doing with money and how do we get that stuff? Because you brought it up a couple times, like, I don't have the money to pay for someone. How do I do it? And uh, talked about schools losing funding and stuff for the arts. You've also been a part of the, or you still are a part of the El Segundo are you part of the Arts Council or a different group in the Arts Council or what is a city art council? How does that affect people? <laughs> That's a good question because I had no idea what that was until I started working at TCO. And I was like, oh, there's a Binghamton Arts Council? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm a member of the El Segundo Arts and Culture Advisory Council. Um, this is a council that was created by the city of El Segundo uh, about a little over three years ago. Um, and the purpose of this council is to um, identify, you know, arts and culture opportunities and needs and really be advisors to city leadership on how our community can better serve, um, you know, our neighbors with the arts and with cultural exchange. Um, and so I've been uh, on this council for about two and a half years, this December. Uh, will be three years for me. And so really got to be a part of it from the beginning and, and see it grow and develop and, and be part of the team that sort of established who we are and what do we do here in the community. Um, and uh, it, it's really been an incredible experience. So, you know, El Segundo really is this, has this industrial history, right? We started as a standard oil company town. Uh, back in the 19-teens <laughs> and uh, through the years have made an incredible impact on our broader uh, community, including the nation, through aerospace, um, through military technology. Um, you know, Mattel is headquartered here. Uh, we have the Lakers and the Kings who are headquartered here. In fact, at one point, I think we had the most Fortune 500 uh, headquarters out of any uh, city in the United States. Wow. Well, like right on the 710? Uh, 105. Hmm? 
105. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And El Segundo's like two miles by two miles right off at LAX airport. <laughs> most people don't even pay attention to it. Yeah, it's a tiny community that most people drive by if they, if they don't know it's there. Um, but, you know, so much innovation, so much industry has come out of this community over the years. And, um, you know, but we've been seeing a shift over the last decade, I would say, where as more and more manufacturing jobs kind of go away to other cheaper places, um, we see our economy shifting and it's turning into more of a creative economy. Um, now, in addition to some of these industry, you know, major players, um, you also have a lot of toy companies. You have virtual reality and augmented reality companies. Um, Spectrum um, just established uh, their television studio uh, here in El Segundo, uh, which has been very big. We have Textile, which is a major apparel company that's operating here out of our community. Um, and so as the creative economy grows, the city has been thinking, okay, you know, how does our brand, how do our priorities, how does our strategy shift to meet this new um, thing that we see happening here? And, you know, I don't know if you've heard the term Silicon Beach. It's mostly describing Playa Vista and Venice and Santa Monica. It's all these tech companies that are, um, you know, making that their West Coast headquarters. Well, El Segundo is now becoming part of this Silicon Beach movement of these huh. cool tech companies um, that are making, you know, kind of their second home, not just in the San Francisco Bay Area, but here as well. Um, and so, so the arts and culture is increasingly becoming part of the fabric of El Segundo. And this council is helping to guide the city in, in activating that in our town. So what does that look like? Because El Segundo is, for the people who haven't been there and spent months in there, I lived there for a while, um, it's a cute, old-looking town with walk all over the place and cute tree-lined streets and adorable houses. And what what does art look like there? And not just performing arts, but you guys do all kinds of arts, right? Or support all kinds of arts. Yeah. Um, so art and culture, of course, is a broad term, um, but it can cover everything from um, visual art, um, which can be murals or sculpture, um, to uh, cultural activities, um, which might be, you know, education. It could be TED Talks or something similar. It can be educational um, programming uh, through the library, through our recreation and parks for youth or adults. Um, it can also look like, you know, uh, kind of performance arts, right? So dance, theater, music. And, and lastly, I think for our community, as we change and shift, it's creative placemaking. Um, so it's looking at, you know, the architecture and the landscaping and just the, how you yeah. feel when you walk through a community what story are we telling uh, through the creative placemaking here? And so the Arts and Culture Advisory Committee really has uh, insight and is working hand in hand with the city in all of those areas to see that, how we can enhance it for our uh, businesses that are here, for our neighbors that are here, and to attract cultural tourism so that we have more folks who actually come to El Segundo as a destination uh, because it really is a vibrant community. What does the 
the council look like? Like who sits on this council? You obviously come from an arts background, so I can see how that is, but are there many other people who on this council that come from that, that background? Are they more business people or teachers or uh, I was gonna say housewives, but you know what I mean? Like what is the, the, the makeup of a council like that? Yeah, so um, this council is made up of citizens uh, of El Segundo or people who work here. Um, yeah. And uh, most people have some sort of artistic background, but it doesn't necessarily mean that their day job is in the arts. Um, so certainly we have some lawyers, we have some architects, uh, we have some you know folks who work in you know business, um, but they all have a deep passion for the arts and have some sort of background uh, in the arts that helps to inform um, their decisions, uh, both practical and creative. So you guys uh, talk to the city council and help do things. Very <laughs> You're supportive. so descriptive. I know, but like what, how do, how do they come about? Do you provide money? Do you provide space? Do you provide, you hire the talent to put on a show? What, after talking to them and coming up with ideas, how does this, turn into reality and physically happen in the city? Yeah, so um, what we try to do is have open dialogue with our city leadership and try to understand what are their big picture priorities uh, for the community? Um, how can we serve the business community and how can we serve our residents? And, um, and uh, along, I think, parallel to that, we're also very close, you know, ear to the ground as far as what our artistic community is doing, what they need, what opportunities are out there. And, you know, we try to play matchmaker, essentially, um, finding yeah. ways that we can use the arts, use cultural programming to um, benefit uh, the people who make up El Segundo's uh, population um, and, and, you know, try to align with what the city's broader goals are. Can arts organizations go to you? I know it's big in Binghamton that they have a a granting system. Is that something that you guys do? Like, can, a, can an organization go to an arts council and say, we have this idea, can we get your support? And then you guys help bring it to the city government? So um, right now we don't uh, give any direct grant money um, out. However, we are always looking for um, opportunities that we think might be a good fit that we could ultimately then present to our city leadership um, mm -hmm. to see if that's something that our city wants to move forward on. For example, um, it, uh, our west-facing entrance. So we're a beach community. Um, right off the ocean, we have this stretch of road called Grand Avenue that leads up a big hill and then you know goes into our residential portion of our city. And Grand Avenue is flanked by a power plant and um, like a like tanks, like water tanks. It's not a very picturesque. <laughs> and several years ago, in partnership with the city, we identified this need where a lot of folks are visiting the city for the first time through this entry point, and yet the first thing they see is this old, rusted-out water tank. Yeah. What image is that? You know, portraying for the community. And so um, we worked with. Uh, a renowned artist, John Van Hammersveld, uh, to create a 360 degree mural that wraps around this entire water tank. And we're talking one of those big, like 
40 foot high, you know, a hundred foot wide sort of water tanks. Um, but it's this wraparound mural and it's this, you know, wonderful artistic uh, entryway now that really sets the tone for what you're going to experience when you enter the city on that side. And so, um, you know, this is a project that some citizens and some very interested folks in El Segundo brought to the table and through partnership, through working with the city, through working with the company that owns the tank, um, we were in, you know, probably about a year able to push this project through and, and get it done. And so that's the kind of partnership that I think in the near term, we're able to do with local organizations and with local citizens. Need to, I haven't been to El Segundo in a while. Uh, I lived right off of Grand, but I don't usually enter that way. <laughs> so now I want to go over there and just see what this mural is. Right. So, I was just going to ask for a picture because I was like, I know exactly the road you're talking about. And I want to see what it looks like. That's that's awesome. No, I think that's that's really cool to know because I think many of us, like I had no idea that arts councils existed until I worked in Binghamton. And so I think it's a good resource for people to have who do have ideas or a project that they want to get going. And maybe it's bigger than just, you know, their their company, you know, or they need the support of a city or they need the support of a council, which I'm assuming a lot of, cities have similar councils or an arts organization. Long Beach has a big one. That's also why we're covered in murals and stuff all over the place. But I don't know. Did Redlands have one? I doubt Highland has one. No idea. I'm I'm not sure. Redlands did have a pretty robust like mural program. Like I, I, I saw new murals going up a lot. I don't yeah. know the specific structure that they had around that program, but but they were certainly very, you know, forward thinking as, as far as public art went. Yeah, they were very arts oriented. So I feel like it is a thing, you know, it's, it's great to know that that is a, a resource that people could look into if, you know, if they have a project mm-hmm. that they want to put forward. Yeah. Or if they just want to be a part of the government and want to do arts in the city, maybe look into joining the local arts mm-hmm. council or committee. That's what I feel like I'm going to do when I retire. <laughs> Good luck with that, Twin. You're never going to retire. I'm going to sit on boards, drive people crazy. You know, I'm going to be one of those people on the boards that are like, do you really need that? Or I'm going to, you know, drive the actors crazy and be like, I think production needs more money. <laughs> I, think we need, I think we need four stage managers on this production. That's my retirement plan. Good job. And it's well, open an arts council. <laughs> well, I did want to share... Um, we have a success story on this council Um, and it's something that I want to share because I think this could be a new model for a lot of cities and municipalities in, in how they can bring, um, you know, funding to the table because that's the biggest problem, right? Working in the arts Mm -hmm. is it's funding is virtually non-existent. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, you either go by sales of tickets you go by, um, you know, corporate sponsorships or, you know, foundation sponsorships. Maybe you have an individual giving program, but it is very hard to kind of bring all these pieces together to get the funding you need. And so when we originally formed this committee, um, we asked the city, you know, okay, great. You know, we're a committee now. Hey, city, can we get some funding so we can do stuff? And they said, uh, unfortunately, no, uh, we don't have any money in our budget to fund arts and culture right now. And I understand, of course, you know, cities have so much uh, critical (laughs) funding needs 
um, from emergency services to public works um, to economic development. And, um, you know, arts and culture just rarely gets above a certain line in, in any city uh, budget. And so um, we had some really cool members of our group who started brainstorming, well, what are other sources of funding we can get? And we noticed, and this is fairly unique to El Segundo, um, that because we have so much business coming here, we have a lot of commercial development. Um, there are new business parks, there are new creative campuses being built. And so we thought, well, what if we could create some sort of arts and culture fee that as each new commercial development program gets approved, 1% of their total budget has to be directed towards arts and culture programming in the community. And so we spent about two and a half years on this massive campaign, working hand in hand with a lot of our um, commercial developers, working with city leadership, working with members of our community um, to really show the community why this helps the community, why it is better for them to give some of this money. And, you know, especially as we see our creative economy is really growing, there are, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $3 billion um, coming in a year um, based on our creative economy, right? And so the mm -hmm. more we can make El Segundo a beautiful place, a place that is vibrant with arts and culture, um, the more creative businesses will want to come here and the more everybody benefits. And so we were able to ultimately, um, you know, work with city council to get this passed. And in November of last year, this officially went into effect that 1% of all commercial development in town, um, you know, according to certain guidelines, uh, now goes into an arts and culture fund. That is so amazing. Oh, if everybody could do that, like 1% doesn't sound like a ton, but then you add like you add a couple zeros to the end of it because you're talking not $5 here and there, but like, you know, a whole 20 story building being built and suddenly you got enough money to actually put on a show or a mural or something like that. That's really cool. Or build a new park or do a playground or, you know, redo the outside you know the tree line street or whatever that's so awesome absolutely and so um you know this next year you know we're very lucky that we have uh, a lot of big projects um that are underway um and so we'll have some decent funding that we can use to to really enhance the city uh some of the projects that we have on tap is um, creating a new entryway on the north side where the airport is so Imperial and Main mm -hmm. Street is, oh, yeah. I, I think many would consider the primary entry point. Is, you know, if you're coming off enter. the 105 freeway, yeah, uh, that's where you come in. And so how can we redevelop that park space in that entryway um, that, you know, really communicates um, the brand and the culture and the vibrancy of our community? Um, and so that's a project we're looking at. Uh, one that I'm very excited about is um, doing enhancements to Library Park, which I think is our hmm. most visually prominent park in town. It That's sits right across from the high school. Yep. Okay. Um, and partnering with the library to create a story trail in that park um, so that um, residents can walk along a trail and come across different displays that have different parts of a book or a story. Um, and it's not static. It can be changed out seasonally. Um, so as you walk the park, you can experience a story um, all along the way. 
Uh, we're also looking at um, plans for a potential amphitheater uh, space, like a small stage and amphitheater space in that park oh, um, to better utilize the space um, for small pop-up performances that might happen. Um, and finally, a project that a lot of cities are kind of looking at right now is, is a response to COVID. And that is with indoor dining shut down or severely restricted, how can our local businesses and restaurants uh, continue to serve customers, but in a safe way? And a lot of communities, including ours, are building out, um, they're closing sections of the street mm -hmm. and closing parklets and building out outdoor dining. And so we're really excited to be partnering with the city to uh, help infuse that with art and culture. Um, you know, mm. whether it's murals and artists we bring in to design the spaces that people are sitting in, um, whether it's a live performance elements uh, that can happen outside while people dine on the weekends. We're really trying to think the, almost the way a theme park designer might think about placemaking. How can we create this inviting and vibrant space that connects people with our culture and our community while they dine, while they shop, while they explore the town? I so it now feels were... like part of it and not like... A, an add-on effect or you know like it seems like it was supposed to happen this way now because you're you're all-inclusive absolutely absolutely yeah driving uh long beach is doing a lot of that but they just have dropped uh the big orange k-rails filled with water water and uh screwed some lou onto the front of it and painted it white like yeah. that's not pretty at all <laughs> exactly <laughs> did much better than that some places Ours are, are very doing... creative some places are doing great. They've added umbrellas and one has a mural in front of it. And some of them have like gaps that have potted plants, but some of them are okay. just, yeah. I put Lou on in front of this big orange block and put up some pop-up tables and chairs. <laughs> <laughs> They're failing. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting <laughs> is I think nobody knows how permanent or temporary this is. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So certainly Why there spend are a lot of time and money? Right. Um, but what's interesting, again, as we talk about what might happen after COVID, you know, there is so much support and excitement within the community for outdoor dining that I'm very curious to see what happens once we can go inside. It would not be surprising to me if some of these measures become permanent because mm -hmm. people really do enjoy dining mm -hmm. outside and, and experiencing the community, I think, more in the way that some European communities do. I, I think maybe mm -hmm. it's not as prevalent in the U.S. where everything's very road and car centric. Um, people love gathering in public spaces. And, and I think some of this stuff will be permanent, um, you know, when we get through the season. And a lot of advantage we have, uh, Twin, you don't have this. Uh, yeah, no, I was just thinking this. We're in Southern California. We have <laughs> yes. nice weather. <laughs> we don't really have to worry about snow or rain or anything like that very often. Yeah, it gets hot, but also El Segundo's a beach city. It's almost always pretty decent there. Just throw on a jacket, you're fine. <laughs> that's, well, that's true. One of the things I... they've been... Oh, go on, Jeff. Oh, I will say, though, um, you know, right after I think we did the podcast uh, back in 2017... Um, I had the opportunity to spend a few weeks in December in Germany and Austria. And, you know, as you both know, um, having been in Europe, you know, the Christmas markets uh -huh. are absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's freezing. Oh, <laughs> but feel you're, my toes you're, out for with, you're out there with glue vine and there's fires and there's a, a lot of great food. And, and so 
you know, I think that, you know, I don't know what Americans tolerance is going to be for extreme weather, but (laughs) certainly I think there's opportunities even beyond just beach weather or Southern California weather. I think there are creative opportunities to use public space and, and kind of adapt to rather than fight against uh, Mm -hmm. the climate in your space. Yeah. I mean, there's like heat lamps and stuff and, you know, I always there are some of that. Yeah. But that's what I was wondering here because it, it does seem like such a popular thing here. And that's one thing that the city has been saying a lot or a lot of a lot of restaurants have been saying, you know, like if we aren't allowed to eat inside once it starts getting cold, we're just going to be like killed. Like we won't be able to do anything. And so like that's a big push as people are so worried about the weather, which I think is less of a concern in Southern California, you know, because like you can eat outside in December and here that's not really going to be an option, but Oh my God! They there's, can't take you said away, there's ways to do it. They can't take away more of your streets. Where's everyone going to double park? Yeah, but they're already doing it now, and people are surviving. So I mean, oh, okay. somehow I don't know. I'm going crazy, but you know, but like <laughs> it's working right now. So I do feel like it would be an incentive for them to keep it this way. And I do. I mean, it does drive me crazy a little bit because everyone's double park and there's no parking, so like you can't drive down Fifth Avenue. But uh, it is kind of cool to see all of people all of the restaurants like individuality in the street there you know like you could drive down and especially you know where we are we're like oh that's obviously a Mexican restaurant and that's obviously a a seafood restaurant because they've like incorporated that into these little like cutouts along the street and it is kind of cool to like they all have lights up and stuff it's really cool to see it does feel much more European like you're talking about uh so it is interesting European I also judge all of them because I was like, that's not six feet apart. That's also not six feet apart. <laughs> Where is your six divide? feet apart. We can get a drink there. Yeah. But you should pull out the spike tape. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Do it! I need you to stand oh on my your God, orange so and funny. your blue. <laughs> right on You're it. Way too close. I should do that. Yeah. If I ever go out to eat, I'll be like, just I'll just spike six feet around me as a big square. <laughs> like no one's allowed to get closer to me than that. <laughs> But it, 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 you're right, it is an interesting concept. And I love that El Segundo is trying to think like, well, what if we just make this a little bit more permanent? It could work. There's so many good restaurants in El Segundo. So many good restaurants. Oh, there are just in the last few years, there's been an explosion of, you know, <clears throat> great new restaurants moving in. Um, renowned chefs uh, that are choosing El Segundo as the spot that they want to, you know, create their new restaurant. And so... Uh, it really is exciting to see how, again, how how our uh, our economy is changing, how our dining is changing. Um, nobody would have been a, a tourist in El Segundo 15 years ago. No, <laughs> um, but but now you know it really is a, a fantastic place to to dine and to shop and to hang out. Yeah, and I think it's because of the arts. It's because you guys are like making it someplace that people physically want to like go live and see. Absolutely. An environment has such a big impact on on your enjoyment, right? Yeah. I mean, you can have the same food and the same drinks with the same company, but if you feel like you're in a, you know, a dark alley, it's going to be very different than if you feel like you're in a vibrant space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm excited to see the way that the arts, you know, not only are, are great in in kind of their own spaces, but how the arts can inform and change other spaces um, that aren't typically seen as um, artistic uh, on their face, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. 
not just dining and shopping, but, you know, walking down a street, how, what, again, what story does this community tell when you're inside of it? We need to put all the people who are unemployed right now in uh, city councils. And arts councils. <laughs> to make all cities look more like Disneyland. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That Disneyland just more inviting. Like yeah, there are Disneyland's places that I don't want. Pretty wanna... inviting. That's it, it. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, now I can put Disney a light up castle at the end of the street. So exactly. <laughs> now you can make a projection map a castle. You can make a change for the winter. It'll snow. It'll be just like Disneyland. Awesome. <laughs> that's his. That's his master plan. He didn't tell you guys, but he's changing the world into Disneyland. <laughs> it's been his goal for time. years. Yeah. <laughs> I can believe that. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm right there. Perfect. And some churros at a Star Wars land. I'll be set. No, what is it with you and churros? <laughs> Today's conversation. Every time we go to Disneyland, Kai wants a churro or a corn dog, but that line's always really long, so we usually go with the churros. Well, I've got to tell you, I've been missing Disneyland. I know. Um, I've been missing corn dogs and churros too, and so. And I only um, got to go on Rise of the Resistance <laughs> once. I didn't even get to go at all. Kai's been like five times. <laughs> Twin. I'm surprised, Jeff, that you haven't gone at all. I thought that you'd be like one of the first people over there. Well, I thought I was being super smart by saying, "Hey, I have a pass. I live nearby. I can mm. just wait until the crowds die down, and then I don't have to be there right at opening of the park." All mm-hmm. the time in the world. This was me <laughs> on March 1st. <laughs> and then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, it's not like a million people have seen it and you haven't, so. <laughs> true. This is true. Yes. Very we true. we were so, at the but... opening performance of, uh, what was that one we were at opening of? World of Color. We were oh, at yes. the opening of World of Color. Yes, we, we did stay in line overnight for that. Um, but I guess I am excited that when the parks do reopen, there is something brand new to me <laughs> that I get to experience. So so I am looking forward to that. So it's, it's twice as exciting for you. Exactly. Thank God Disney's open. Where's Star Wars? <laughs> <laughs> That's me. <laughs> Okay, we have hit one hour, and uh, Twin, it's about your bedtime, but uh, it's dinner time. For oh, I know. <laughs> I gotta leave my office. It's been such a long day. They turned off the lights on me like an hour ago and waved goodbye. It's been a little creepy outside in the warehouse. <laughs> but Jeff, thank you so much for being on the podcast again i've highlighted half of my notes so it's going to be interesting for me to try to like write a couple sentences with half of my notes highlighted on do this <laughs> do an arts thank council <laughs> join an arts no, council I, I, yeah seriously i think that's something that like a lot of people should do because i'm sure you've learned so much about it too like when i joined the board of directors for an organization like such a steep learning curve you know you get so much more behind the scenes which I'm sure, you know, you probably learned how to work with the city and what the city did, which, you know, is something, again, that you never probably knew until you were forced into it, more or less. Forced in a good way, you know, like you were first forced to learn about it because you wanted to make a difference somewhere else. So, Absolutely. Yeah, cities work very, very differently from arts organizations. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> but 
but I love yeah the opportunity to be able to work with the city. And I think we all benefit from diversity of thought, right? Um, that the folks who are engaging in these projects don't just come from one background or come from one form of training or education, um, but that, you know, as we have seen, uh, the arts and culture and even our communities are so much better, um, you know, with diverse perspectives. And so, um, you know, I'm grateful for all the wonderful people that we have coming together from various backgrounds to, to really try to enhance arts and culture in our community. Yes. Yeah. Very important. Every, the world should learn from that. Oh, at least America. <laughs> Let's start with getting America to stop being dumb. Then we'll work on the world. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I gotta go. But thank you so much. And uh, yeah, I'm going to uh, cross my fingers till it's Chiro time again. And uh, yeah, watch some fireworks shows. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Well, thank you both for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much, Jeff. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.